Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be back in the book of Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 2. And if you recall, last week when we started this series, we learned that Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding. And one of the things that Nehemiah is most famous for is obviously rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But there's a lot more that he is about rebuilding. And we're going to learn about that in the weeks to come. If you remember, Nehemiah shares the specific role in this story of being what's called a cup bearer to the king. What that means is he tastes all of the food, drinks all of the wine ahead of the king. And this was an ancient practice in order to keep people from actually poisoning the king. And so that was the role that he had. If you remember last week, I also did something else. I showed you a map in order to orient us on where we are in the story. I've got that map again this week. And you'll notice that to the far right, next to that little uh, castle-looking thing, it's called a citadel, uh, that's where Nehemiah was with the king of Persia. His name is Artaxerxes. And he was all the way over there to the right in that Persia-Babylonian area. And the Israelites, the Jewish people, had made their way back from captivity to Jerusalem all the way to your left. And that is the spot where they went to rebuild the city that was, again, formerly theirs, had fallen into ruin and disrepair. And so they were, had made their way back. So we have Nehemiah over here with the king, and he is you know, learning about what's going on. Last week we found out that uh, the, the, the people that have gone back, the exiles that have gone back, are not doing well. The city is in disrepair. It's dangerous. And so they are in need of help, and there is help on the way as Nehemiah learns about this story. Well, let's go ahead and pick up in the Bible. Your Bibles are open. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, and this is the way that it is recorded. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, uh, uh, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And this, the king said to me, the queen, sit, queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy and the king granted me this, what I ask, for the good hand of God was upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me uh, officers and the army of the horsemen. 
We'll stop there today, just in verse 9. Well, we picked up on this last week, and we learned, obviously, that Nehemiah was finding out about the city, and this week is the week that he takes action. He does something with that. Here's what I want to start off with today. We all live in a land of persuasion. There are constantly ways that you are trying to be persuaded to act every day. Maybe the most obvious around us is that there are commercials or there are advertisements that are thrown at us every day at every moment. There is, of course, uh, insurance companies that are trying to persuade you. Geico says, buy our insurance. It's the best. Or there's uh, a Toyota that says, we want you to persuade you to buy our cars. Coke, well, they want you to persuade you to drink Coke. I mean, that's what they do. And so there's constantly a barrage of all of these persuasions that are coming at you. In fact, the people that measure these things say on average between four and 10,000 advertisements hit the normal American every day. I know that we see a lot. I never would have guessed it's that high, but those are constantly happening all around us. Marketing, 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 persuasion, persuasion, persuasion. And that's just consumer marketing. There are other kinds of persuasion. There's persuasion about causes or there's persuasions about initiatives that are happening. Perhaps the most famous uh, thing that's happening right now in the city of Seattle, the most famous persuasion is around two open positions, both for coaches, both of the Hawks as well as the UW Huskies. And there are persuasion going on right now. We have a million good reasons why we want you to come to Seattle. Would you accept our position? And so there's a level of negotiation and persuasion that's going on. There's also persuasion that happens in, of course, our personal lives. We are trying to persuade others all the time. We're trying to persuade our spouses about a vacation we want to take or about a car we want to buy. We're trying to persuade our kids to eat their dinner. Uh, So whenever we sit down, we're having a negotiation about that. We're trying to persuade uh, our husbands to close the toilet seat. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things that are about persuasion. That does not uh, negate the church either. I mean, there's persuasion that is happening all the time in the church about things that we want the church to offer or courses of actions that we want the church to take. And so all of that is happening all the time. Here's my point. Persuasion is all around us. It's part of life. It's part of being human. And it's part of every culture spanning all times. Persuasion is common to all of our lives. So here's my question for you. How does persuasion work? How does persuasion work? Is it just that we uh, follow a God who says, you know, you just take the back seat over there, just go ahead and put your feet up on the easy chair and let me just go do all the work here? Or is there something else that's going on? Well, Nehemiah seems to indicate that God's work and our work sometimes are just like this. They're hand in glove. And that God expects us actually as servants of his to take some course of action to be participating in this persuasion that's going on all around us. Today, I want to show you how Nehemiah persuades the king to save Jerusalem. This is what he does. There's a series of steps that he takes. And I want to show you what he does in order to persuade the king to take action in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to do today, and we'll apply that to our lives. 
chances are good that you have some sort of action in your life that you're trying to take with somebody. You're trying to persuade them. You're trying to help them. You're trying to correct them in some way. There's some course of action that you're taking to be persuasive. And so Nehemiah can be a roadmap for us. Nehemiah can be an example to us of the way that we would go about that in individuals' lives around us too. Let's go ahead and pick up. Let's find out the steps he takes and apply it to us. Number one, Nehemiah prepared. Nehemiah prepared. Nehemiah took four months to think and pray. That's what we found out last week. And we're going to find out that that was a very important thing for him to do, that he prayed, and the whole time he prayed, he was actually planning also. And he has a very detailed plan that we're going to find out today. Most importantly, he was praying for his own heart. So he was praying, Lord, may I want the right things. And he was also praying for the king, saying, Lord, prepare the king's heart. Because, you know, I don't stand a chance with my little lowly position. All I am is a cupbearer. I'm, you know, I'm not some dignitary or anything. I'm just a cupbearer. So go ahead of me to the king and prepare his heart for this moment. And so those four months of prayer and planning, we're going to find out, are very, very important. Perhaps you have someone in your life that you're hoping to persuade. And maybe you know that in some way they may be a little reluctant to hear what you have to say, Begin by planning, begin by praying, and in fact, begin by asking that God would make their heart ready for what you're about ready to come and say to them. And your time of planning, your time of, of praying may be equally as important as the moment in which you actually go to that person. And that's the way that Nehemiah begins. He begins with a really serious time of doing some planning. All right, what's the next step that he takes? Well, second... Nehemiah came to the spot of risking his position. When he came to the king, what he was about to do was very, very unorthodox. Because normally, the, the, the one who's the cupbearer or other servants, they just come and keep your mouth shut, all right? Yours is not to give any counsel. It's to taste my food ahead of me and just keep your mouth shut. And so what is going to happen here is Nehemiah comes to the spot where he is willing to risk his position, and maybe even his life. In the ancient world, the king had all power. You trifled with the king. You did it at your own jeopardy. And so again, he's taking a gigantic risk by stepping out. And the very first thing that he does with the king is he lets the king see he's sad. In fact, the king even notices. He says, the king says, you know, I noticed that you're sad and you're not sick. What's going on with that? And so that's the very first thing that he does. Before he says any words, he kind of opens the coat and lets the king see his emotion. He's tremendously sad. The king says something very instrumental that gets lost completely in the English language. Because the king says, is this just a matter of sadness of the heart? Is that what's going on here? This is a matter of sadness of the heart? And we might think, well, the king's just noticing, yeah, you're really sad. But what that could be translated in Hebrew is it could be translated, is it that you have a dark heart? Is it that you have some sort of maybe conceited heart or a heart that's hiding something? That's what it can be translated. So that's what makes sense then when when Nehemiah says this, the very next sentence says, I was very much afraid. Why was Nehemiah afraid? Because he's like, whoa, 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 did the king just misinterpret what I'm The signals I'm sending out, is the king thinking that I'm doing something deceitful? 
And so again, he's very uh, unsettled right now as he's beginning this, this campaign of, of getting the king on board with what he's doing. And here's my point. Uh, again, anytime you're getting ready to go and try to persuade somebody of anything, you're risking something. You're risking the relationship. You're risking some position. But if you want to see something occur, then you have to take that risk. Your position may be at risk. You may at least be in the position of being misunderstood. And that's all part of what has to happen. Let me give you an example. And maybe that's ha- this has happened with some of you or it's on the horizon of happening with some of you. You've got a parent. And it's time to say, Dad, I need to have the keys. You've noticed that parent and they, uh, well, that dad doesn't drive like he used to. Dad doesn't see anything at night. Dad's a little reckless. Uh, Dad uh, has been having on the edge of uh, fender benders now. And so you're going to dad to say, Dad, I I need to have the keys. And you know that that's going to be a very difficult conversation because it's going to be one in which it's severing dad's sense of of autonomy. It's the connection to the world. It's the connection of being able to do stuff. And so taking away the keys is going to be a big, big moment. And you have to arrive at the spot of saying, uh, this is what's best for dad and maybe even best for society. And so I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to risk something related to our relationship and what I know is going to be hard for dad by going to him. You're going to risk something in order to gain something. And that is something that always happens anytime you're a part of persuading somebody. So far, Nehemiah has prepared and Nehemiah has been willing to take a risk. Third on the list, the third step that he takes is he speaks tactfully. And by this, I mean he uses language that he knew the king would understand and that the king would most likely be moved by. Uh, To our surprise, Nehemiah never mentions the city Jerusalem. Look, look back at the text again. Read it another time. I guarantee you, Jerusalem is never mentioned. Isn't that interesting? That Nehemiah is asking God to save a city and to send him back to a city in which he never mentions the name of the city. Why is that going on? Well, I can tell you what's going on here, and you have to look back a little bit in your Bible to understand this. Artaxerxes is the king, and I want you to remember that the person that went back ahead of Nehemiah was a guy named Ezra. So Ezra takes the captives back. Ezra's in the process of trying to rehabilitate the city, and there's messages that are being sent back from the governors to Artaxerxes as those individuals arrive. Artaxerxes has made a decree before this moment in Nehemiah's life And the decree is something that is instrumental right now. This is what the decree was as recorded in Ezra chapter 4. Let's read it together. Here it is. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. So Artaxerxes is communicating with the governors in the Judea area. He says, I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that the city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt 
until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? So, again, translation, what's going on here is that Artaxerxes has already made an issue out of Jerusalem. And he's already made a decree about Jerusalem. And the decree was stop work. Because that city is a dangerous city. And if we let building happen there, it might backfire on me and it might not be good for my social welfare or my kingly welfare. And so stop the work. Here's what I want you to hear. Nehemiah doesn't use the word Jerusalem because it's like a stained word. It's like it's something the king will not, will not be warm to. And so what does he do? What is his appeal? His appeal is very interesting because what he appeals to is he asks the king to send him to the city of his ancestors and his ancestors' burial. So he's anchoring his desire for the king to help in language the king would understand and it's about a burial location for my ancestors. And it's like, well, I scratched my head. What? Why would a king matter? Why would that matter to a king? What's going on here? Well, ancient kings in the Persian time had a great desire for issues related to the afterlife, and they especially thought that cemeteries or ancestral burial areas were something that were very sacred, and so they had a great desire to protect those areas. You know, regardless of what people's religion was, they were like, man, we've just got to protect that. And Nehemiah had listened to the king long enough that he knew that, and he knew that's what mattered to the king the most. And so that's the language that he used. He used language about saving this ancestral area of burials, of cemeteries, in order to persuade the king. And the king really said, you know, hey, I get this. I'm ready to grant this request of yours because I care so much about sacred ancestral burial areas. We're like Nehemiah. We're going to use language that's going to imagine that our listeners are going to care about. We're going to use language as we're persuading that's going to help be in terms that they're more likely to say yes to. Uh, Here's an example of that. We are all individuals that know that Jesus says, you know, I want you to make disciples of all nations. And so the issue of bringing up Jesus to others with the hope that they will also find Jesus is incumbent upon all of us. Here's what I want you to hear. In the past, you know, years ago, we would have started messages about the gospel with individuals and we would have talked about, you know, heaven and hell. Where are you going when you're dying? And, you know, that's not inappropriate to talk about. But over time, we found out that our culture has changed. And that's not what's nearly as important to our culture now as some other things. And so what matters to people now? Well, Barna does some research on this. And he's told us what people care about now. And there's two things that people care about the most. They care the most about inner peace, number one, and hope. That's what demographics say as we talk to individuals, you know, just in our nation, around the world here, people care about inner peace and hope. Last I looked, Jesus has quite a bit to say about that. And so why wouldn't we begin to position some of the things that we're discussing with people in those terms because those are the terms that matter the most to them. And so we're going to use language that's tactful anytime we are attempting to persuade. All right, here's what's happened. King Artaxerxes is warming up. He said, uh, you know, hey, uh, I'm, I'm listening, so tell me a little bit more. And he says, what is it that you want? And I want you to notice in this passage that at that moment, Nehemiah prays. 
And, you know, he'd been praying for four months, but he says, man, I, I really prayed at that moment because now was my opportunity. And this is one of the few times in all of the Old Testament in which there is an extemporaneous prayer, in which we have recorded that somebody just stopped at that moment and prayed. And, you know, that was Nehemiah. And, of course, that's us in the middle of our time of trying to persuade somebody also. And so the fourth step that he takes in his campaign of persuasion is that he offers himself. That might be the biggest surprise of the entire passage is that Nehemiah says, hey, would you send me back because I'd like to do this job. And it's like, <laughs> record scratch. The cupbearer is going to become the general contractor? What's going on here? I mean, I just didn't see that coming that Nehemiah would want to be the guy that goes back, goes back to rebuild the city. And so there's a definite plan that he brings out and he says, you know, if it pleases the king, then I'd like free to give me two letters. And let's remember, letters in the ancient world had this, uh, th this force. They were the directives for a king that gave permission to somebody to have certain privileges or to be able to take certain actions. And so he asks for two letters. And what are the two letters he asks for? First, he says, would you give me a letter to send back to, to go with me, to the king of the governor of the area. And why would that be important? Well, the last time the governor heard anything, it was stop construction. And so now we're going to need to start construction, and there's going to be a new letter that has to go and give permission for that. So that makes sense. And then the next letter is to the one who's in authority over the lumber or the timber for the king. So he says, would you send a message to Dun Lumber on my behalf, and so, you know, I need a couple supplies. And so would you send that to, with that letter with me so that I can go and say, hey, I'd like enough timber for this purpose. And he says, there's three purposes that I have. Number one, I want to rebuild part of the, the, the area, the, the fortress area around the temple. I want to rebuild the walls and I want to rebuild my personal uh, residence while I'm there. And so the king grants this to him and he says, you know, I'm in. Uh, let, let's go ahead and do that. He actually asked him first, how long are you going to be gone? But once he answers that, the king says, I'm in. Let's go ahead and march forward on that. Well, this is getting warmer and we're getting closer to that. What I want you to hear is that oftentimes you may need to give yourself in the middle of trying to persuade somebody. In other words, you've got to have some skin in the game. You've got to have some sort of sacrifice that you may have to take in order to be able to persuade them to take their action. Here's an example. Maybe you know somebody, you have a relative that is needing to take a heart-healthy diet. And so you want to try to persuade them to be able to, you know, use a diet that's going to be better for their health in the long run. You may need to be one that says, hey, in gentle terms, let's consider this. But you may need to say, you know what, I'll do it with you. I'll demonstrate to you my own level of commitment to this by doing it with you, and that's a way that you say, uh, you know, I want to be in this with you and I want to offer myself. All right, there's one more thing here that I want you to see that's of vital importance. Nehemiah gave the glory to God. It says, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah, <laughs> he wasn't smitten with his own persuasive powers. He didn't consider himself to have a golden tongue. He was not the one who was the deal closer. He knew that God was the one who would go before him and God would be the one that would grant this to him. He knew that the king would be a stone wall unless the king's heart was somehow melted. 
And so, again, he asks, and God is the one who grants the king's persuasion. The king is ultimately won over to his side. And so Nehemiah stops in order to be able to say, this wouldn't have happened unless God was the one that went ahead of me and God was the one who did this. We have learned today that Nehemiah was about persuading the king about Jerusalem. And that happened in a very sequential form of ways. He took some deliberate steps. He prepared. He risked his own position. He spoke tactfully to the king. He offered himself. And finally, he gave glory to God. And my guess is that all of us here today have some individuals in our lives or an individual in our lives that we want to go and persuade. Maybe you want to offer some sort of correction. You've seen that individual and they're doing certain things that are not good for them or not good for individuals around them, so you're wanting to persuade them of that. Maybe you're approaching somebody or regarding policies. Maybe it's at work or it's in the church or it's in society somewhere and you're trying to persuade them to take a different course of action. Or maybe you have somebody that Well, they just need to correct the behavior in some way or the way that they're treating somebody. And so you are in the process of trying to persuade. Nehemiah is a roadmap. Let's pretend that you take that and now things don't go well. They all blow up. And in fact, you, you know, it's like, whoa, I didn't expect that reaction. Does that mean that you are a failure in some way? Does that mean that God's hand is not on you like it was on Nehemiah? No, not necessarily. Because Jesus is our ultimate example in this. And Jesus is the one at Gethsemane who says, Father, if there's any way for me not to go to the cross tomorrow, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, then let that be. But not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus is this example when the Father comes back and says, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. This has got to happen. And Jesus suffers, obviously, the crucifixion And there are times in which we're going to take an action, attempt to persuade somebody, and it won't work. It doesn't necessarily mean that that was wrong for you to do that. It only means that maybe it's not right now or that God has some other plan that he's up to. Persuading is something that all of us experience at all times in our lives. It's something that we're going to exercise in all of our lives. My desire for all of us is that we use persuasion for the glory of God. Nehemiah did, and we can too. I'm praying for you, for the individual that you're going to attempt to persuade. May it be something that God truly places on your heart and prepares the other person for. Father, thank you again for Nehemiah's relevant life. He is constantly, you are constantly using Nehemiah and others to inform us, to instruct us, to correct us, to guide us in the paths of righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that Nehemiah's example would be instructive to us today. I pray for my friends. There are some right here, right now, that have on the horizon a conversation, maybe a difficult one, that they need to have. And I pray that, that you would go ahead of them. I pray that you would, that you would prepare them, prepare their own hearts for that moment, and that all of that might be done in order for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, thank you for these things, and thank you for my friends here today. Walk with them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.